Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? The jumper replies, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. The man replies, sorry, the, the jumper answers, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. And the man replies, well, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912. The jumper replies, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region of, region, regional council of 1912. The man then pushes him off the bridge and says, die, heretic. <laughs> so, unity, hey? It's oldie but a goodie, that one. Um, I guess that joke is more possibly in line with the American church culture, isn't it? I think. Maybe not. Maybe you could say the same thing. You can work it out later. Jokes aside, that the, uh, the challenges to the unity of God's church are real and, and the unity of God's church matters. It's why Paul, after 14 years, after 14 years, returns to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. Unity was at stake. But not just unity, gospel truth was at stake. The truth about the real resurrected Jesus was at stake. He said, at first glance, this little meeting that um, was read to us a moment ago, this meeting in Jerusalem, it seems quite distant to our concerns today, doesn't it? 2,000 years ago, a bloke goes up to Jerusalem to meet with some leaders. But the truth is this seemingly inconsequential meeting had enormous consequences. And as we'll see, on that day, God protected his church. On that day, God protected you and I. Well, I'd love you to have your Bibles open. So Bible's open. If you've got a Bible, you can now get them at the front there as you walk in. Best thing to do is bring your Bible to church. Uh, maybe you've got it on an iPad or maybe you've got it on, um, on a phone or something like that. But have your Bible open to uh, Galatians chapter 2 and we'll look at those first 10 verses. This uh, interesting meeting that Paul had with, um, uh, with these leaders in Jerusalem. How about I pray for us and ask God to help us uh, understand what he has to say to us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word today and we thank you for church. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, be speaking to us wherever, wherever we're at today. Some of us have come here um, with, uh, with good and glad hearts and, and some of us haven't. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us, refresh us, encourage us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's pick things up in chapter 2, verse 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Paul's still writing autobiographically. Remember, that's that section basically up until the end of chapter 2. He's writing autobiographically. And he tells us once again that he heads up to Jerusalem, uh, this time though with Barnabas and Titus. Some 14 years. 14 years. That's incredible. 14 years after his last visit. And his last visit was spoken about in chapter 1, verse 18. Now we're told there are two reasons that he went back up to Jerusalem. He received a revelation from God and the second is he was afraid. He was afraid? Really? Why? How could this man be afraid? 
Remember Paul? Saul? The, the persecutor of the church? The great bully? The, ma- the guy who killed Christians? Saul, afraid? And, and then a bold preacher of the church. Fear doesn't really fit his character, don't you think? Well, at first reading this is verses one and two. Read as if Paul thought he might have uh, he might have had the wrong he might have been wrong in his message or methods. So he heads up to Jerusalem to to check that he's doing things right or wrong. It makes sense, but it actually doesn't really fit for a few reasons. As we work out why Paul makes this visit, why does he go up to Jerusalem, and why does he tell the church at Galatia about that? That's a good question too. We'll come back to that. But first, Paul, remember Paul went to Jerusalem responding to a revelation from God. Now, we're not given much detail about this revelation from God, uh, except to say that, well, it was from God. And it reminds us once again of Paul's credentials, that he was an apostle. He wasn't your average Joe. He was an apostle. He was sent by the Lord Jesus. So it makes no sense that someone with such special access to God, with a special role to play in God's church, would need to go and get authorisation from other people. And look, if, if Paul had been uncertain, why did it take him 14 years, 14 years to check whether he was on the right track? Anything? And I guess another reason is Paul himself uh, said that if he changed his mind about the gospel... He himself should be rejected. That was back in chapter 1, verse 8. He was that certain of his interaction with Jesus. He wasn't changing his mind. See, the truth is, nothing was threatening Paul's certainty, but something was threatening his fruitfulness as a gospel preacher, teacher, church planter, pastor. Something was threatening his fruitfulness as that. Think back then to that key issue we've been talking about so far in Galatians, uh, that background. If the other apostles didn't confirm Paul's message and take a stand against those false teachers we've been talking about, those Judaizers we've mentioned in Galatia, it will be very hard for Paul's converts to Jesus to continue to stay Christians. These false teachers who we've been hearing about over the last two weeks in our series on Galatians, they were telling, telling that, uh, these young Christians that Paul was preaching a gospel that was inadequate. You're not doing enough, they were saying to these young Christians. Don't listen to Paul. You need to add something to, your, to this gospel you've been hearing. It's inadequate. It's an easy belief. You need to add something hard. That's what they've been telling these young Christians at Galatia. But Paul knew his message was from God and therefore true. So he had to show that this, remember, gospel plus teaching was false. Otherwise, the churches he planted, well, they would have fallen apart. They would have fallen apart. Churches like Galatia. And that's why Paul feared he he was in danger of running his race in vain. He was afraid his ministry would be affected and and become fruitless because of this false teaching that was going around, this gospel plus teaching. It was not as if Paul feared that the Jerusalem apostles didn't have the true gospel. He didn't fear that. But he did fear that the Jerusalem, Jerusalem apostles might not be true to the gospel. 
that they might go soft on these people teaching a different gospel. He was worried that their cultural background, which was Jewish in Jerusalem, their Jewish prejudices, might start to creep in and cause damage. It might start to make them think, well, it's just not enough to believe in Jesus. In Christ alone is not enough. It has to be something more. Paul was afraid that that message would be taught and therefore, well, his ministry would be affected. So here's the scenario. Uh, on, on one side we have Paul who's saying that the gospel of faith in Christ is for everyone, no matter what background, no matter what culture. On the other side we have Paul's opponents who are saying not all people are Christians but all Christians must be Jewish. That's what we've got. Now, if these Jerusalem leaders took the side or even just put up with these opponents of Paul, that would have split the church. Neither side would have accepted each other fully and most likely questioned whether the others were actually saved. Here's how John Stott, uh, UK commentator, well, he's, he's actually in heaven now, um, but uh, how, he, how he describes this in his commentary on, on Galatians. It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles, but could they approve of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to the gospel of Christ, not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as, a good, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ? as the international family of God. See, these, these Jerusalem leaders, they were the ones who did stay in Jerusalem, right? Judaism central. Uh, that was their ministry base. So it would have been easy for them to think, or them not to see the full implica- implications of, of Gentile converts to Christianity. They weren't, it would have been easy then for not really to think it through. It would have been easy for these leaders just to say, well, of course all Christians should eat kosher. Of course, that's what you do. Or something similar. These, these sorts of implications hadn't really come across their desks yet. You know? But Paul's point was that the consequences of such a seemingly small issue was in fact enormous. There would have been two opposing parties within Christianity that would have been hostile to each other on the fundamental point of whether we needed to add anything to faith in Christ to be saved. And that's a message the Galatians had to hear. That's why Paul writes in verse 4 of the freedom we have in Christ was under threat. And in verse 5, the truth of the gospel was at stake. Let me read verses 4 and 5 for you. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. This meeting, this seemingly inconsequential meeting, could have split the church all over this fundamental point of whether we need to add anything to faith in Christ to be saved. The stakes couldn't get any higher. They couldn't get any higher than that. So what was needed was a test case. That's what was needed. And that's why Paul brought Titus and along with him Barnabas. Now Titus was a fully-fledged, right, real-deal Christian from a Greek, uh, Gentile, non-Jew, non-circumcised background. Paul says if they can accept him, 
Well, we're on the same path. Titus would be the test case. You see, Paul's uh, false brothers, he calls them in verse 4, who have infiltrated our ranks, the ranks meaning the church, would have insisted that Titus needed to have faith in Christ plus live according to the Jewish rituals like circumcision. So Titus was the perfect test case. Would he need to be circumcised or not? Do you need to add Jewish rituals to faith in Christ to be saved? Now spare a a thought for Titus at this meeting, won't you? Imagine Titus, there he is, sitting in the corner just over there, not really taking the lead right now, just following things along, but they're talking about him. He's sitting there, cross-legged just a little bit, you know, looking very, very nervous. I don't think he'd ever prayed so hard for people to know the grace of God. Um, but good news. Remember verse 3? Good news is not even, yes, yet not even Titus, who is with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The good news for Paul and the Jerusalem leaders is that they saw eye to eye uh, on, on gospel truth. For verse 6 tells us, God does not judge by external appearances. Another commentator said the Jerusalem apostles walked the walk rather than talk the talk. That's what happened. This commentator goes on actually and says, externalities, it's a big word I know, but externalities are to do with our doing. Internalities have to do with our being. And Christianity is about who I am in Christ, not what I do for him. Did you catch that? It was quite a distraction, wasn't it? I'll say it again. It's really important. It's hard to compete sometimes, isn't it? Um, Externalities are to do with our doing. Remember, we've talked all about our doing that don't get us anywhere with God, really. Internalities have to do with our being. And Christianity is about who I am in Christ, not about what I do for him. Well, verse 6 actually tells us further good news. If you're following along, the Jerusalem leaders, Paul says, added nothing to Paul's message. That might sound a bit harsh when you first read it, but it's a good thing. In other words, they agreed that it was faith in Christ alone and no performance or ritual was needed to be right with God. Titus was, Titus's acceptance was proof they got it. And everyone heard Titus breathe a great sigh of relief. <laughs> well, how about the implications of all this then? So the implications of this go to one of the most fundamental aspects of following Jesus. Put simply, the law and its regulations are designed to point us to a need, to our need for a saviour, for, for the saviour. We cannot make ourselves perfect before a holy God. The law makes us conscious of our sin, as Paul writes elsewhere. So only in Christ can we be holy in his sight. Colossians 1 verse 22 says, holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Only in Christ can we be like that. Uh, So such ceremonial laws, well, they have not, we read them in the Old Testament, have not been abolished, they have not been replaced, but using Jesus' words, they've been fulfilled. They are fulfilled in Christ. So they point us to Christ. They, they point, it's, it's Christ who makes us clean. Why do we read the Old Testament? Why do we read the Ten Commandments? Why do we do it? 
seems so far, well, because it speaks of a holy God and it speaks of Jesus Christ. That, those, that law, the Ten Commandments, for example, point us to Jesus. They point us to our need for a saviour because Jesus fulfils that law, that Old Testament. And so Titus was the perfect illustration. We are made clean, forgiven, right with God, not through any deeds or rituals or Jewish rituals or anything like that, but simply through trusting in Christ and relying on him. These false teachers wanted to make them slaves, Paul writes, preventing them from enjoying the freedom we have in Christ, earning it, or at least trying to earn it with God, well, it leads to slavery. Now, Jesus uses this illustration. It's, it's, it's one, of the, one of my favourite parts of the Bible. It's what we read every time we have communion, actually. Um, Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. I read it again. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, Jesus is using the metaphor of a yoke that guides and pulls and weighs down on a working animal. Now, a great example is the Australian sort of bullet trains um, of the early European history in Australia. Uh, it's a good photo because it shows how heavy they were and they weighed them down. It was a burden on them. It caused them great distress. It was painful. It was restrictive. And in no uncertain terms would you describe this as freeing. <laughs> Not a chance. That is sin. That's what sin does to us. It is a burden. It weighs us down. It causes us pain. It restricts us. And Jesus, by his death on the cross, lifts that burden off us. When we come to him, we find rest. Can you imagine those animals when that yoke is taken off them? Oh, that feels so much better. That's what it is to be forgiven by Jesus. Oh, it just feels so much better. I know it's better. That burden is taken from us. He gives us rest. And these false teachers wanted to put that burden back on and say, Jesus plus something else. And we know that's no gospel at all, Paul says. Well, how does the gospel lead to freedom? What are we talking about when we speak of gospel freedom? Well, I've got two there. You can see them on your outlines, but also up on the screen. Um, cultural freedom and emotional freedom. This is the, the thing about moralistic, do-it-yourself, DYI religion, is with its specific rules and regulations, is that it creates cultural ghettos. Uh, you see, if the false teachers like these Galatians got their way, an Italian or an African could not become a Christian without becoming culturally Jewish. They might say the same thing today about someone becoming, someone becoming a Muslim. Uh, you can't become a Muslim without becoming culturally um, Islamic, uh, taking on all the rituals and regulations and casting aside their cultural heritage. But the gospel of Jesus says that all are welcome. Remember Pentecost? Uh, all receive the Spirit and they all speak in different languages across the world, signifying that anyone can become a Christian. You don't have to become a Christian and then, then change your cultural heritage. Not at all. What you look like, what country you come from, what cultural heritage you come from doesn't matter. It counts for nothing. What matters is your being, who you are in Christ. What matters is your identity in Christ. Now, as an aside, uh, 
do you see how any form of racism and intolerance towards other cultures has no place in God's church? I hope you see that. In Christ, we have real unity, real tolerance, real love, real freedom. And as the psalmist writes in Psalm 133, he says, How good and pleasant that is. It's so good and pleasant, it's like oil running down your beard. Apparently that's good and pleasant. Never truly understand that psalm. Anyway, cultural thing. That's okay. It is good and pleasant and that's what unity is. Well, second, gospel freedom means emotional freedom. Moralistic religion is about guilt and insecurity. If you feel guilt before, you're, before praying to God in, in the Lord Jesus, then uh, in one sense, there's a, there is a, of course, there's a sense we understand our wrongdoing and repentance is part of that. But we don't wallow in guilt. You don't understand Jesus if you wallow in guilt. Moralistic religion is about wallowing in guilt and the insecurity, knowing that I've just got to do more. Well, you haven't understood Jesus' death on the cross for you. Following Jesus is so different. Again, I quote this Tim Keller book on Ready on Galatians. Um, he says, We obey Christ not in fear and insecurity of hoping to earn our salvation, but in the freedom and security of knowing we are already saved in Christ. We obey in the freedom of gratitude. It's a good quote, I think. You see, I am set free to serve. That's what Galatians is about. I'm set free to serve. The gospel's about that. This passage um, highlights, I think, three aspects of real Christian unity. Um, I'm going to run through these quickly as we close. Real Christian unity means accepting all those in Christ, regardless of cultural or ethnic background. Friends, an Australian Christian in Robertson has more in common with a gospel believer, a Christian who lives a nomadic existence on the Mongolian plains, than they do with a non-believer who lives on their street, drives a similar car and who goes to the same uh, school as theirs. It's very true. We have more in common with that Mongolian believer on the plains of wherever it was than we do with a person down our street uh, who doesn't believe in Jesus. Second, Christian unity means recognising different callings. See, these early Christians recognised that Paul had been entrusted to the, the Gentiles and uh, Peter to the Jews, even though they were preaching the same gospel. See, what matters is the message. That's what matters. Not the presentation of it. We can adapt our presentation to who we're speaking to, Jews or Gentiles, in this case. But we must not lose the gospel in the process. And thanks be to God, Peter and Paul are on the same page. Now, one such, such example of losing the gospel in our presentation of it would be raising church traditions to the status of non-negotiable, which is essentially legalism, isn't it? And we're slavery all over again. But if you, you can go the other way too and remove anything offensive, such as preaching judgment or miracles, and you end up down the liberalism path and fail to preserve the gospel. So you can do the, There's a danger there, isn't there? Let's notice one, one more thing about real Christian unity. And it's right at the end of the passage. It, it sort of comes out of nowhere, but it doesn't. Um, remember the poor. Remembering the poor. Have a look at verse 10. I've got to find it too. There it is. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Isn't that interesting? One more aspect of Christian unity is remembering the poor. Uh, God makes it clear in his word that Christians must care for the poor. It's actually a unifying force in the church. 
But, friends, real Christian unity has its limits, though. Christian unity must not come at the expense of being Christian. And it's the word of God that defines what that is. Remember why Paul went up to Jerusalem? Because there was a matter, a matter that had to be attended to. He speaks of a matter arising. This gospel matter was affecting unity. So there are limits to Christian unity, uh, and perhaps we'll touch on more on those in the coming weeks. Well, friends, I'm going to pray for us, and then um, I'll see if there's any time, any any um, any questions or comments. You might have um, one or two. So let's um, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your good gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that by the, your death on the cross, you made us clean, and we don't have to add anything to um, uh, to to faith in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you save us as broken and battered and as sinful as we are. Lord, we pray that we would be unified together as a church. We'd be unified uh, in the, the gospel truth of your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for us, who rose again to show that, that, that his death worked and it mattered and forgiveness of sin is, is now possible. So, Lord, we pray for our church. Help us to be unified. Help us to be unified in the truth of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.